Judaizers by defending his own apostolic authority. He was defending grace as something you can't earn against the Judaizers who were demanding that in order to become a real Christian, not only did you have to have faith, but you had to follow all the Jewish Mosaic laws, especially circumcision. And so Paul begins his defense, his defense of his gospel of grace by defending his own apostolic authority. Look at Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a different gospel that has to be earned by being circumcised and by upholding the Jewish Mosaic laws. He says, I'm astonished that you are turning to a different gospel, verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some, meaning the Judaizers, who are insisting that the new Gentile Christians must be circumcised and uphold the old Mosaic laws. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They want to add these unnecessary requirements to the simple process of accepting Christ as Savior and Lord by faith. They want to insist that all Gentile Christians, those who hadn't been Jews before becoming Christians, they want to insist, they want to demand that anyone who becomes a follower of Christ has to be circumcised and to uphold all the Old Testament Mosaic laws. And so Paul then proceeds here to defend and to legitimize his own authority to teach this gospel of free grace that can't be earned through the law by telling the gospels that he was given this gospel from Christ himself and that this gospel was already accepted by the apostles and that he had already defended this gospel when even Peter himself acted like one of the Judaizers by refusing to eat with some Gentile Christians simply because they were uncircumcised. Now, this was important stuff because Paul defending his gospel of free grace it affected how the Galatians would choose to communicate and spread the gospel message. It affected how they brought people into the church and how they talked about becoming a member and being faithful. They, the answer to the question of whether you come to Christ by upholding the law or by faith was of utmost importance. I mean, for example, just, just think about how, how the new Gentile Christians, in fact, I'm thinking mostly about the new Gentile Christian men before Paul felt. Think about all those men who were not Jewish and think about the demands that were put upon them with all the circumcision stuff. They were probably like, dude, are you serious? <laughs> like, I just want to follow Jesus. What does being cut off down there have to do with properly following Jesus? That seems kind of weird to insist on that, eh? Apparently, they all had a slightly northern accent. Yeah, in fact, actually, scholars have just recently come across an amazing find from the ancient Near East. And we actually have a picture of one of these Gentile men who was none too happy when Paul's letter finally arrived. Check it out. Dude is not happy. He's like, really? I'm a day late and a foreskin short? Ha! Made up that joke myself. Okay, so back to Galatians. Focus, people, focus. 
everybody's like, you're the one who showed that dorky meme. Yeah, I know. Back to Galatians. Back to Galatians. So, Paul has been defending his gospel of free grace by defending his own authority. And then he begins to defend the gospel from their experience and from Scripture. In Galatians 3, Paul appeals to Scripture and to the experience of the Jewish Christians in Galatia, to their own experience of coming to know Christ through the Spirit of God. So Paul says, just think of how you Jewish Christians came to know Christ. He says in Galatians 3, look at verse 2. Galatians 3, 2, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you come to have the Spirit of God in your hearts by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, did you come to know Christ by your own adherence to the old Mosaic laws or by hearing God with the ears of faith? And then he actually doesn't answer the question because he knows they know the answer. By hearing with faith. That's how they received the Spirit. So, think about it. Even these Galatians to whom Paul's writing, most of whom had been Jews before becoming Christians, even they didn't receive the Spirit by their own adherence to the laws, but by hearing the Spirit of God with ears of faith. And then, in a brilliant move, Paul goes back into scripture and back into their own Jewish history of redemption. And he says to them, in effect, that same process is exactly how it happened for Abraham. The very one you would call your own father in the faith. So, while I know I've covered a lot of ground in Paul's argument from the beginning of Galatians, and it's all a little complicated to track with, which is why you would be helped by reading through Galatians once or twice a week during this series. What Paul is saying up to this point is that the Galatian Christians, most of whom had been Jews before becoming Christians, the Galatian Christians should reject the Judaizers. They should reject the Judaizers who were insisting on circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic laws, and they should accept new Gentile Christians simply by faith, without circumcision. Because, and this is key, what justified Abraham, who they considered their own father in the Jewish faith, was not the law, but hearing with faith. Jump down to Galatians 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. Just as, quoting Genesis 15, 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then, listen, this is huge. And this is where we begin turning toward today's passage. Then Paul extends that idea of Abraham, their father in the faith, coming to know God by his faith. He extends that idea of Abraham coming to know God by faith to the Gentiles. When he says this, look at chapter 3, verse 7. And this is radical stuff for the Jewish Christians to hear. Know then, 
because Abraham came to Christ by faith. Be certain about this in your head. Know then that it is those of faith, those born of faith, who are the sons of Abraham. It's not just those of the correct genetic, genetic lineage who are of the sons of Abraham. It's those of faith. It's not even those who are circumcised or who adhere to the Mosaic laws. It's those of faith who are the actual sons of Abraham. That's why, next verse, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. He's referring there to Abraham's response of faith in God's promise in Genesis 15, 6, going all the way back to Genesis 3, 15. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul is saying here that God was working all along in Abraham and by faith to justify, and here's the radical part, to justify even the Gentiles so that all the nations, same exact word as Gentiles, Gentiles, nations, same exact word, so that the nations beyond the Jews would know Christ by faith And that even they, even that guy in the meme, even they would be part of God's forever family. For the Jewish Christians, for anybody who had followed God in the Old Testament, who was an Israelite or a Jew, that would have been a total mind-blowing moment. You mean others get in? Yeah, Paul says. That's why, to turn to our passage for today, Paul can say this. Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, meaning when you're in union with Christ through his death and resurrection, that that are your death and resurrection, Romans 6, 1 to 11 from last week. When you are in Christ Jesus, it means... You are a son of God. Being in Christ means, Paul writing to them, you are all sons of God through faith. We'll talk more about what it means to be sons of God in a minute. But notice first an interesting grammatical shift that Paul makes here in the text. In verses 23 to 25, the previous three verses that we studied a few weeks ago, Paul had been speaking in what's called the first person plural using we and our statements to emphasize the situation before coming to Christ. He says, look at verse 23 and following. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in bondage to sin, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed until Christ came. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith has come, we are no longer under a a guardian. And then notice the shift that takes place beginning in our passage today. That first person, we and our, become the second person plural, you, five times 
in four verses. As if Paul is pointing to them as he says this, because he wants to personalize things even further so that they understand what they really have and who they really are in Christ. Look again at verses 26 and following. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Five times he emphasizes this, this personal experience here because he wants to make crystal clear who they are in Christ And he wants them to understand deeply the implications of being in Christ and in this new by faith family. So jump back to the beginning of verse 26 and let's unpack these implications a little further. He says this, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now in the Old Testament, God the Father spoke of and he he treated the people of Israel as if they were his son. In Exodus 4, verse 22, when Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go free, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. In Jeremiah 31, 9, God says, I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. All of this was a way of saying that God was their father, that the people of God were his child. And he speaks of them as his son, as as a foretaste, as a first indication of what would come in Jesus. So Paul has been saying here, up until 326, that the law was for the people sort of functioning like a babysitter who was keeping us all in line. But he says now, if you're in Christ Jesus, you no longer need a babysitter because you're an actual, mature, fully developed son of God. Not in the sense of being male, but in the sense of of sonship, meaning having all of the rights and the privileges of inheritance that came with being born male in the Greco-Roman world at the time of Paul's writing of this here. So through faith in Christ's perfect life, through faith in the capital S son of God that fulfilled the law where the small S son of God, where Israel and where Gentiles had failed, you all become, he says, a son of God. You all become members in God's family. Because you have sonship through Jesus, God gives you rights to what the son has earned. So, keep reading. Verse 27. A parallel kind of statement with verse 26 here in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you're sons of God through faith, verse 26, in Christ Jesus, then the parallel here is that as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Meaning, 
You've got sonship rights because if you have faith and you've been baptized into Christ, which Paul is using here as a shorthand for the entire conversion process, then you have sort of put him on like, like clothing. So even here, by the time that Galatians was written, which was pretty early compared to other New Testament writings, baptism had become the sort of culminating event. It was the last event in a person's conversion process. And so he's using a shorthand uh, for that whole conversion process here by talking about water baptism. And, And water baptism here by this point was a ceremony for being in union with Christ and integrated into the church. And both of those aspects are what he's referring to here, union with Christ and integration into the church. And what they would often do with water baptism is that they would baptize people in a brand new white robe to symbolize their their new unstained and perfect life that they now had because of the life of Jesus. This is what Paul means by, by putting on Christ. Colossians 3.10 says it this way. He says, You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, after the image of the creator of the new self. In Isaiah 61.10, the Messiah talks about God the Father delivering his people. And he says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. And then he says this, For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Paul is saying here that if you have been baptized, not only are you a son of God by faith, but you have been baptized into the life of Christ and you've put on new clothes of his righteousness. And so that means you should delight in the work of God for you. Your soul should rejoice in who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus because the true son has fulfilled the law you couldn't. And that means that if you're baptized and you're in Christ, that you are new and you are free from condemnation. And then, and then Paul applies that union, that identification with Christ to the body at large. He says something next that we in our modern world might kind of take for granted as something we all assume, but, but it's something that would have sounded radical to his readers. Look at verse 28. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. He sets up these three sets of contrasts. And here's why. For you are all one. Same idea as before. All sons of God through faith. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, there's an interesting note here, and uh, we can't be entirely sure of this, but many think that Paul says there this idea of no Jew nor Gentile, no slave nor free, no male nor female. Many think that Paul says these three things here, using these categories of ethnicity and, and social status and gender in this particular order, because he's purposely drawing a contrast with a prayer that many Jewish males would have been praying every day at the time of Paul's writing. And that prayer went like this, Lord, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Can you believe that? The the prejudice aimed at all three of those categories there was real and strong. 
and had a history to it. So Paul's speaking to people who, in, at least in some parts of that context, that religious context for the Jews, would have had very deeply rooted, deep-seated prejudices. Now, while Paul's words here are obviously part of why Christianity would continue to become a, a liberating force for removing barriers for human flourishing in all three of the categories we've just mentioned there, and and Christianity should be, verse 28 is not meant to be understood primarily as a political or a social statement as we think about it. As if Galatians 3.28 is like some proof text for like unisex bathrooms. Are we tracking? You see, the modern ear that is in love with a worldview that denies that God is creator too easily hears these verses here, these words in, in Galatians 3.28 the modern ear with a worldview that denies God as creator too easily hears these words as reasons to deny natural, God-designed distinctions. But that's not really what's going on here. And Paul is moving here in verse 28 from incorporation into Christ through faith in the previous verses to incorporation into the body of Christ into receiving a brand new identity because of Christ. In Christ, Paul is saying, the old pre-Jesus identities and the, the socially constructed categories of, of race and class and gender, they are no longer ways to divide in the body of Christ. They're no longer hindrances to sharing the gospel. Rather, this new identity, he's saying, has made us into a new people entirely. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So what Jesus did, Ephesians 2.15, what Jesus did is he created in himself one new man in place of the two. That means that even though God-ordained distinctions remain, the church alone can be a beautiful witness to the truth of the kind of reconciliation that can only happen because of Christ. Paul is saying, those former divisions that used to be clear among all of us in Galatia, in the body of Christ, are reconciled and they don't hinder us. He's in fact saying you can't, you don't, you won't find actual peace and harmony in any meaningful or long-term way apart from being reconciled to one another through Jesus. He's saying it doesn't happen. It's not possible. Anything other than that is fake reconciliation. Only the cross of Christ actually has power to bring together sinful people. Take that to the bank, friends. In contrast to a whole bunch of things we hear in our world today, only Jesus actually has power to bring together sinful people. So, as Paul says, what Jesus is doing is a much bigger and more important and fundamentally, definitionally changing thing than you think it is, Galatians. And as he asks in 3.7 that we referred to earlier, who are Abraham's true sons and daughters? Who belongs to the family of Abraham? More than they could have understood before. 
The fundamental definitions have changed because it's one family, it's one people, it's one Jesus who brings them together and reconciles them. And he, he answers his question in 3.7 about who are the true sons and daughters of Abraham, who belongs to this family, in our last verse. He answers in verse 29. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Paul says, if you have Jesus, if you have him by faith and you're baptized into his death and resurrection, then you are in the family as a full heir of everything that Jesus earned and that God the Father promised to him and to his people. Let me say that again because it's a big deal. If you have Jesus by faith and you're baptized into his death and resurrection and his death and resurrection are yours, Paul's saying here, then you are in the family. You are a full heir of everything Jesus earned and that God the Father promised to him as a result. Friends, I don't know about you, but I suspect you're a lot like me. And in our quiet moments like this, at the end of a sermon, when we're thinking about these things, we have to admit that Paul's words today bring up some hard issues. We have to admit that most likely, even if we claim Christ, we struggle mightily with living up to and understanding even just a fraction of what we claim. We struggle with living up to and understanding even just a fraction of this new identity that we've been given in Christ by faith. I don't know about you, but I know it's so easy for me to live a consistently defeated life as if I am still condemned by my failures. It is so easy for us to give in to the voices of those around us who seem to enjoy reminding us of our deficiencies. We know in theory that we're heirs of Christ. But as one writer says, we appear to have missed the reading of the will. Remember, friends, remind yourself today that it is by the authority of the word of God that if we have Christ by faith, we can have confidence, not in self, not in our competence, not in security, not in safety, not in meeting others' expectations or job performance, and not even in our moral ability to do good before God. If we have Jesus by faith, we can have confidence in God's infinite wisdom to share his son Jesus with us to make us a member in his family and to grant us salvation by his spirit that makes us new. I want to end with Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. Listen to these precious words also by Paul. Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, if you're a believer in Christ, struggling with internal forces of constant condemnation and failure, come reclaim Jesus as your Savior and Lord today. Stop sitting in a jail cell, a jail cell where the door is unlocked. And if you're hearing the Spirit of God by faith and the work of Christ for you, then this moment, right now, is an opportunity, perhaps for the first time, to claim your inheritance as a child of the God who keeps his promises in Jesus. Friend, he loves you. He is your father. And he has adopted you as his own through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Father in heaven, we are forever grateful for the amazing truth that you accounted for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity in ways that mean that right now, at this moment, if we are hearing your voice speak to our hearts, it's because your spirit has enabled us by faith to hear you. And so we respond, saying yes to what you offer us in Jesus. His perfect, sinless, life lived as a sacrifice for us. That because it was perfect and sinless, counted as a sacrifice for us so that when we receive him, we are baptized into his death and burial and raised to life so that his resurrection is our resurrection. Father, we love you for that amazing truth and that we are sons and daughters made so by your work in us and for us. Teach us, encourage us, help us to build a context where we encourage one another from that amazing truth, Lord. 